0: Or welcome back to a holiday edition of the Primrose Chronicles. What's the holiday, you ask? Memorial Day. That's important only as it affects the focus of this installment, the greatest spectacle in racing, the Indianapolis 500. But we'll not be going trackside. Only as it was witnessed from afar across town on Primrose Avenue and to discover that it was still experienced up close and personal by those of us who participated in the day's big doings in the neighborhood. By the conclusion of Mother's Day commemorations earlier in the month of May, drivers and race crews began sprinting toward the little suburb of Naptown called Speedway, Indiana, home of the Indianapolis 500, held there regularly and annually since 1909 on May 30th, Memorial Day canceled only by world wars in the former pastures at the corner of georgetown road and 16th street sat the indianapolis motor speedway nicknamed the brickyard for its original track surface with its two and a half mile oval and gasoline alley of pits for the 33 cars and teams that had qualified to race each other for 200 laps 500 miles all hoping to claim the modest cash prize secure their name and image on the coveted Borg-Warner Trophy, and take several swigs from a quart and bottle of milk, courtesy of the Indiana Dairy Association. But most cherished would be the possibility of being named winner of the greatest spectacle in racing, auto or otherwise, according to its rabid fans. For the entire capital city, and most of the towns, and of course the residents of Primrose Avenue on the near northeast side, This was the singular Memorial Day event. This meant that during the two or three weeks of time trials, conversations and speculation how favorite drivers might finish, if rookies might compete and make the field, and when the race accidents might take place affecting the final outcome, superseded all talk of politics, other sports, and even Bible Belt religion. Most of the calendar year, Indianapolis, Crossroads of America, didn't have a lot to draw the attention of the other 47 states. It gained the title Crossroads of America because U.S. Highway 31, that ran north and south right through the state, from Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico, and U.S. Highway 40, the National Road, whose route was basically Atlantic to Pacific, intersected America in Indy, Meridian and Washington Street. As such, it was a drive-through kind of area. But in May, at least, the eyes of the racing world were riveted on the capital of the Hoosier State. While the Indy track was used year-round for tire tests, we young kids had bragging rights here. Our dad, working for a U.S. Rubber Company, tests drove cars fitted with the newest innovation, tubeless tires, both on the oval out at Speedway and on the beach course at Daytona Beach, which would one day be the site of the great American race, the Daytona 500. The track and its garages were also used for engine modifications and the development of safety features in family cars. Think rearview mirrors, seat belts, and a host of others. This fifth month of the calendar year was when it became a beehive of activity and attracted even the only mildly interested attenders and made them rabid fans. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway was the mecca of the racing world, and many folks began as soon as the race was over one year to plan their pilgrimage back the next or at least soon after. For several years, when May rolled around, the Primrose Trailhead neighborhood, including the Young household, began to make plans for its own reenactment of the contest that would be held a mere eight and a half miles to our west. In short, we held a loosely competitive Little 500 with bikes and trikes converted to racing vehicles by their young riders and family owners. We began turning our collective attention to Speedway the two or three weeks preceding the race itself. Those were the days that time trials were run. Time trials were individual races against the clock to determine placement in the 33-car field, 11 rows of three, which would compete at the end of the month in the big race. One car circling the oval at a time, four laps, and its average speed compared to the 32 others. Ears were figuratively glued to the radio throughout Indiana to hear who was the fastest Who had qualified for pole position to start that Memorial Day race on the front row inside? The weeks dragged on for many due to the anticipation of the race itself. But the weekends flew by for the drivers and teams as opportunities to make the field to qualify dwindled. Then there was on that last day or that last weekend the seemingly interminable anxiety of what car was on the bubble the slowest that potentially would be dropped from the 33-car grid if another car posted a faster four-lap average in its time trial. The last day of qualifying as a result was fraught with drama. And of course, whether at breaks in the workplace, before, after, or during school hours in classroom or playground, or even over many backyard fences as laundry was being hung on clotheslines to dry, the major topic of conversation was the qualifying drama and action of the previous weekend, especially if a new track record for speed had been set. By the end of the 1950s, it took a speed of over 145 miles an hour to sit on the pole and 140 miles an hour to even make the field, and conversations at decade's end hovered around the question, could they go any faster? For your information, the answer was yes. Since 1984, the pole sitter has recorded an average qualifying speed in excess of 200 miles an hour with a top speed of 236. That's too quick for my blood. So let's return to simpler and slower times that this podcast is dedicated to. Now, to know all these facts were important in its day because they helped us kids to know which driver we wanted to represent in our own neighborhood Memorial Day Classic. We drew numbers to determine who got first choice of drivers to represent, and then we set our field. We never did have a full contingent of 33 kids participating, so we never had anybody on the bubble. But favorites were chosen and sometimes traded for. Over the years, it was names like Bill Vukovich, Tony Bettenhausen, the Rathman Brothers, Jim or Dick, Roger Ward, Parnelli Jones, Jim Hertebees, and of course, A.J. Foyt. They were our favorites, often based on the fact that they were from Indiana or even lived in the city of Speedway. Some, like A.J. Foyt, were our practical favorites because they were winners. And then everyone shied away from other drivers just by reputation. For example, Ed Elysian rhymed with collision. You can understand that one. Bikes and trikes from a dozen-plus driveways began making their way to the Primrose Pits, the front yards of the Youngs and the Millses. 26-inch, 24-inch, and a few 22-inch bikes made our field, maybe even with training wheels, as well as a variety of sturdy metal tricycles, all sized to fit the rider. Modifications for the day possibly included plastic streamers inserted at the end of their rubber handle bar grips, and fenders adorned by numbers formed by black electrical tape corresponding to the driver's car that we were representing. They brought with them playing cards or baseball cards and a bag of clothespins, which would provide the engine sounds for their petaled conveyances. In the time preceding the race's start, Bicyclists placed the cards over their fender mounts leading to front and rear axles, then bent the edge and pushed a wooden clothespin over each card to keep it in place. If properly installed, the card clicked against the spokes of the wheels and made it a fine imitation of a gasoline motor. The more cards affixed, the greater the roar, or so we thought anyway. Pit stops would be made to replace cards and or clothespins. In preparation for the race's start, the two and three wheelers lined up approximately as they were announced on the radio. Bikes generally in the street, trikes on the sidewalk. The tricycles would be relegated to a much shorter distance, and certainly not around the block, but they would still be part of Primrose's greatest spectacle in racing. I'd be remiss not to mention our audio connection to all the events surrounding the 500-miler taking place across town. And that would be a single radio station and its broadcasting personalities whose familiar voices made them seem like neighbors sharing rather than professional reporters of an international event with its subplots and human interest angles about the drivers and the teams. You see, these personalities were familiar because we spoke with them or at least heard from them daily on the most popular radio station with the strongest signal in Indiana, WIBC 1070 AM. But for this day, WIBC's local on-air celebrities stepped away from spinning the platters, forecasting the weather, reporting the news, and giving farm commodity reports to take their places around the track and in the pits, offering a word's-eye view for not only Indianapolis and the greater Indiana listening audience, but the entire nation and the Armed Forces Network around the world as the team of voices comprising the flagship station of the Indianapolis 500 radio network. For one day at least, the world came to Indiana and its capital, Indianapolis. Sid Collins... W.I.B.C.'s longtime sports director was the anchor. Jim Shelton, Howdy Bell, Fred Heckman, and a host of lesser luminaries became national celebrities because of the four or five hours of this one event. This was a big deal for all Hoosiers. And so, the radios blared unison for this one afternoon from every home, it seemed. Some set in open windows... Some at the end of extension cords in the front porch or patio, each one tuned to seemingly the only frequency broadcasting that day, 1070 a.m. At the instruction of this broadcast, we stood as one for the national anthem and sang along with a guest soloist and the Purdue University marching band, getting a little teary-eyed as we were reminded of the words, back home again in Indiana. Most of us knew it because it was a staple of the Indiana Elementary Music Curriculum. Back home again in Indiana, to the fields I used to roam, clear through to that final lyric line, and I dream about the moonlight on the Wabash, and I long for my Indiana home. Race day. Crosstown or on Primrose was off to a great start. Now, it wasn't until we either actually attended or watched it tape-delayed on Wide World of Sports that we discovered that part of the pre-race pageantry was the releasing of hundreds of red, white, and blue balloons. I do remember one year, about a week after the race, someone on Primrose found a deflated red balloon in their tree, and some dad, who had attended the race, quickly declared that it was a race day balloon, the only one we'd ever seen on this side of town, and it quickly became a priceless heirloom worthy of the yet-to-be-built Primrose Avenue Museum. I throw that out there for any possible generous patrons. Once the ceremony that we could not see was over, we then eagerly listened with the 300,000 at the track and the millions across the radio waves for the most famous words in auto racing. Gentlemen, start your engines. But for the Primrose participants, there was a moment of silence. We did not immediately imitate the engine noises with our mouths, you know, imagine that would precede the start of our race before giving over to the cards in the spokes, but rather we would turn our ears slightly south and west in the hopes that we could hear the 33, 270 cubic inch, four-cylinder, 325 horsepower Offenhauser engines revving as one prior to propelling their open-wheel roadsters into the first turn. If the wind was blowing from the west, many believed they could hear the rumble. It was that deafening in the area just around the front straightaway and speedway. But my dad said they were all full of hooey. Anyway, that moment of intense listening, with declarations of, oh yeah, I hear it, or once again, nothing, was followed by a more local sound. All the kids on bikes and trikes, and a good number of parents and neighbors that had gathered at the starting line, began to make those engine sounds with their lips and the more guttural sounds from their lower voices. I'm not going to do it again, but just imagine doing that sound where you are right now. I'll pause for a moment for you to try it. Wow, that was great. I think I could hear you from here. As a previously selected adult waved the green flag, the kids pushed off from the starting line, activating their card and clothespin engines. Parents then returned to their respective lawn chairs to finish reading the daily paper, or fill up soap buckets, moving hoses to yards or driveways for washing cars, or carefully piling charcoal briquettes, then dousing with lighter fluid for burgers and hot dogs later. You know, the regular Memorial Day activities. But back on our track replica, kids of all ages, bikes and trikes of all sizes, had begun to traverse Primrose, north to 45th, east on 45th to Ralston, south on Ralston to 44th, then back east, following the bend back on around to Primrose, and then north again to the ultimate finish line. Once around the block, one lap. Those bikes came into view on Primrose, The youngest on trikes simply rode back and forth, up and down Primrose, always on the sidewalk, but as I said before, they didn't feel cheated, because they were part of the greatest spectacle, Primrose version. It wasn't for a few years before we realized that we were running our race backwards, all right-hand turns when our big brother model was all left-hand turns, but by then we had established our own tradition. I don't know. When I moved on to being a vendor at the track and then a patron, those who went behind us may have reversed the course. I just know it didn't happen when we ran the show. This was not the only difference. This race varied from its official counterpart in so many ways. Yes, we had fans on every turn, at least for the early laps. Folks on all four streets brought their lawn chairs to the sidewalks and cheered on the young drivers. But they did something that none of the spectators at the speedway did or could do. They invited the riders to pull over and stop for a snack or a quick sip. And the young riders did something the 33 drivers would never do. Slow to a stop and accept the offerings. Also, no one in the Primrose Oval pedaled a full 200 laps. In truth, it wasn't actually a race at all. We had our selected race driver personas and took positions in relationship to others as we circled the block according to the positions announced by the actual track announcers heard from radios broadcasting as one. Passing when our guy passed, pitting when our guy pitted, we didn't crash when they crashed. But our day was officially over when that actually happened on the big track. Even if we did choose to Keep riding just to be with our buddies. Eventually, we either tired of the monotony of going around and around, or we tired of all the exercise and the heat, or the official race had finally ended. We then pulled off and into the front yard pits. If the Indy 500 winner was one of the drivers that we had selected, he or she would be so recognized. Not with a wreath of orchids, or a quart of milk, or a trophy, or even a small cash prize, just hearty handshakes and bragging rights for an accomplishment that they had had absolutely nothing to do with. Then barbecues and multi-family picnics could begin. The smell of dozens of different grills filled the air just as balloons had done hours earlier across town, and the day could be brought to a close, generally early because kids had school and dads had work and moms probably had laundry to do from the Special days activities and before. But for most households, it was the unofficial start of summer. School would be out soon, days would continue to get longer for a while, and for another 330 days, Indiana would go back to being one of those host of Midwest states, generally being a leave for a vacation location rather than an end destination. But for one month in May, Indiana and Indianapolis in particular, with its welcoming people and down-home lifestyles, shined brightly and would do so again next Memorial Day. And the next. And the next. Even as the Uniform Monday Holiday Act makes it always the last Monday of May, not the 30th, and the TV blackout of the race for citizens of the Hoosier State was lifted, and the race went to running on Sunday, May is still race month. And Memorial Day weekend still features race day, and that's when the world still comes to Indy. There's a lot relating to the race day that exudes memories for me. I worked as a vendor at the track, selling the Indianapolis Star in the infield for a couple of years as a junior hire. While employed as a delivery driver for a pizza shop after securing my driver's license at high school, I drove a three wheeled Cushman scooter with a large warming oven complete with racks, full of personal pizzas, cheese, pepperoni, or sausage variety, the whole night before the race, driving up and down Georgetown Road and 16th Street, going back to the shop to pick up more, selling to the potential infield patrons who were parked and partying overnight, and then into the long-term parking lots that were filled with the campers and vans, which were in turn filled with revelers who had gotten a big head start on those who were parked in the street. For all of them, their goal was to be first into the snake pit. But my Indy 500 sales career and exploits will have to wait until next season of TPC. The same goes for the year that I went as a patron, and with other members of the Primrose Car Club, we tried to get our own spot in the infield. I can't even tease you with that story without spoiling the fun that you'll have listening. So that'll have to be filed away until next year's Memorial Day telling. So that's going to be it for this time. I hope you're not disappointed that I didn't get you anywhere near the track with this tale. I was following the lead of several who had joined the Chronicles fan club who specifically asked that I would remember the Indy 500 Primrose style. Next week, Lord willing, We'll be back strolling the halls and classrooms of Russo McClellan School Junior High Edition. And following that, a tribute to my dad and dads everywhere. So become a fan of the Primrose Chronicles and get a full summer schedule with release dates, titles, and overviews. Hoping you have your own wonderful Memorial Day and spend at least part of it traveling around your own track of memories. Pulling over occasionally into the pits to just refresh. That's what this episode has done for me, pleasantly leading me into another time that celebrated special holidays and cherished rich family-focused days, most of them circling Primrose Lane or Primrose Avenue. Blessings.